Today's scripture reading is from 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gifts you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Well, through our First Timothy series, which is called um, Building a Healthy Church, we've been talking about this mentor, Paul, the Apostle Paul writing this letter to encourage a young pastor named Timothy. And this month at Bethany Church, we've previewed a couple times, we're calling it kind of our Mentor Appreciation Month. All of us probably in this room, or most of us maybe, have had somebody who poured into our life. Someone who cared about us, shared the Lord with us, encouraged us, walked alongside of us at some point in our life. And this morning, um, Pastor Don Smith is here to open up the word for us as he has been that mentor, one of those mentors in my life. I met Pastor Don uh, when he guest spoke at a college group I was part of. And when he came and spoke that night, as I listened to him preach, I thought to myself, I have never heard somebody preach the word of God with such conviction with such a pertinence and relevancy to my daily life. And it was so full of Christ, his message. And not just the imminency and the, the friendship and the personalness of Christ, but the transcendence of Christ as a sovereign king over all the world. I grew up in the church and never heard of that Jesus. I heard of Jesus as my savior and friend, but the king of the world and the center of the story of the Bible, I hadn't heard that. And I heard that and I said, I gotta be where this guy is. So as a young adult, I started attending Christ Community Church where Don was the senior pastor for 26 years. And I spent a good 15 years there, uh, most of them with him. I started as an intern, went to seminary, and became a full-time pastor there. And Don Smith was uh, one of the two integral pieces in me uh, um, really processing a call to ministry and affirming that ministry. And so was Christ Community Church. Don was a mentor, is a mentor, a friend. He was my boss at one time. And his imprint on my life is indelible. Um, since retiring from his senior pastor role, Don has begun to start a ministry called Barnabas Brothers for the last uh, 10, 11, 12 years, uh, a pastoral training ministry where he has traveled to Peru and Haiti and the Philippines and China and Africa and other places to train pastors. So would you welcome with me this morning uh, Don Smith? Jeff, you read my introduction I wrote for you so well. Thank you. <laughs> I was wondering if I was thinking of the same guy that he was talking about. Uh, let me say this. Um, I think it'll be obvious as we get into our text that we read, thank you, that there is a real correlation between what Paul writes to Timothy and really, in a sense of 
what I have wanted and I see in Jeff and in Robin. And so my comments are not just to those two or to David, but to the leaders of the church and to everyone who's here this morning. It's important to understand that we serve the, what Paul calls the living God. And I want to encourage you to look at your Bibles as I teach. The reason I say that is because I hope to bring from the text what I want to say to you this morning. Someone has wisely said, if it weren't for hope, people would, their hearts would break. Without hope, there are people who are broken and they need help. They need hope. And we hear a cry around the world today from brokenhearted people. They cry in desperation because of hunger, displacement, disease, persecution, death, war, poverty, natural catastrophes, domestic disputes, and just despair. And no one is exempt from such things, even the children of God, even us. But once in a while, a uh, glorious golden moment interrupts this cycle of futility. It may be a, a new birth, a joyful wedding, a cheerful holiday, a great accomplishment, an answer to fervent prayer, or time with family and friends. And except for these welcome interludes, life seems to continue with a grind and a groan. Today, however, is one of those joyous moments for me. I'm greatly rejoicing the fact that I've had a, a good time with my um, grandson and his fiancée. Uh, it made the trip doubly a blessing. But as you know, and as Jeff has said, I have a long shared history and ministry with him. He's talked about how he began in the youth ministry. He was there and then how he sort of moved along through the, the ministry we had for young men who were, how would I say, men with promise. You could see it. You could, you could tell these people have something that is unique, and it's called a calling or a gift. And I saw that almost immediately. And so I remember others and myself getting to be with Jeff and saying, you know what, Jeff, we see that you're called to the ministry. And he wasn't, you know, like, well, yeah, I've kind of thought of this, and I would be a real blessing to the Lord. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm kind of thinking I might join the team because he really needs me. He didn't say that. And I kind of liked it that he was reluctant. Because when you understand what it means to walk up these steps, for me, for him, and any others, and say, thus saith the Lord, you better make sure <laughs> that you have a call. You better make sure that God has his hand on your life. And he does and has on Jeff. I've carefully watched his progress over the years, that he's a man of above reproach. He's a loving husband. He has a wonderful wife. He's a caring father. And he's a dedicated man to his calling. And he continues to have what I see in him, and I, I hope that you've recognized this, a deep love for God, a passion for the scriptures, and a sincere, tender heart for others. 
And so for me to see him here in this setting, it just really gladdens my heart. He has been tried. He has been tested. And this has made him spiritually mature beyond his age. Pastor Jeff asked me to join your sermon series on 1 Timothy, entitled Building a Healthy Church. What a great series that is. And this morning we will consider Timothy's admiti- uh, Paul's admiti- admonition uh, uh, to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. And the title of this message actually comes from the text is keeping hope alive. Keeping hope alive. Now, as you could tell, I am mature. (laughs) And I'm getting very mature. And I've been told by my friends that you can tell if someone thinks you are still young or they know that you're really getting old. And they said the way to know that is fall. So here's how that works. If you fall in front of your family, like my grandson, they'll laugh. They'll laugh because they think you're kidding or you're playing around. However, if you fall in public, people hopefully will gasp and they will run to help because they think you're really getting old. <laughs> and all God's people said that are, that are over or near my age say amen okay so if I fall this morning I want to warn you about that if I if I fall please don't laugh rather call 911 because I openly admit that I am getting very mature now a healthy church that exudes hope is built on a number of things, but one of them that Paul addresses to Timothy is sound, healthy doctrine. Healthy church must have what? Healthy doctrine. Our English word for hope is not necessarily based on certitude or certain propositional truth or moral absolutes. Instead, as we see in our country and around the world, truth is determined by relative values and personal choices that seem right to some, but not necessarily right for everyone. The Bible, however, uses the word hope in a very different way. All truth is God's truth. If it is true, it is God's truth. Because Jesus said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And God has revealed himself to us and truth by Christ, the scriptures, creation, and history. It is perfect, absolute, and timeless. No matter what the best wisdom, whim, and will of men may be. In other words, God's will, God's truth, is always consistent with his infinite wisdom and his perfect holiness. So our hope is confident, confident assurance that what God has promised in his word will be fulfilled just as he ordained. If he ordained it, he promised it, it will come to pass. The church, therefore, as you have already been discussing, is to be a pillar of truth. But what does the pillar lift up? Certainly Christ and his word, and we lift up God's truth, and on that truth is hope. 
You see, hope is dependent upon truth, on God's truth. So if we have faith, faith in the living God and God's word, then Paul says we have a living hope. It keeps showing that it is true, that it continues, and you can rely on it. You can depend upon it. Now, around 60 AD, this apostle Paul wrote a very personal letter to a faithful young man who he referred to as a good servant of God. What a great way to be known. And it was written to encourage him to keep hope alive, not just for him, but for his church in Ephesus. And he also was told, stop self-appointed worry mongers who had crept into the church spreading their doom and gloom. Stop it. No one wants to be around pessimistic prognosticators in difficult times. I don't. Who do I want to be around? Hopeful people. So when people go to church, they want and they need to hear about our hope in Christ and not about pessimistic speculations or vain reasonings. We can hear that kind of negativity by turning on the world news. You don't need to have that done here. Matter of fact, when I've preached recently during the pandemic, I encourage most everyone to discipline themselves to at most listen to one hour of Fox News a day. And if you've watched it, you know what I mean. You need to listen to something else. You need to also have something else to give you hope. The Apostle Paul encouraged Christians in his day, living in Rome through very difficult days, to do three things in Romans. He says, and listen to these. Let this be the motto. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, which means also be patient in pressure. And be constant in prayer. That is a living hope. That is living out hope in the local church. Rejoice in hope. Be patient during these difficult days. And be constant in prayer. This mindset, this commitment, will keep hope alive in this church and in our individual lives. In chapter 4 of this letter, Paul exhorted Timothy. He exhorted him to build a healthy, hopeful church by continuing to teach sound biblical doctrine. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are about doctrine, but as a pastor who teaches and preaches sound doctrine, I've heard some dear souls come to me and say, you know what, Pastor, I, I, I like the idea of doctrine and all that, but could you preach something that I, you know, that I could take home and put on my refrigerator? I'm saying I just talked about the doctrine of grace. How about that? Well, no, I was kind of thinking of something that, you know, kind of spur me up and, and, you know, get me through the day and get me through the week. Well, what's wrong with grace? You know what I'm trying to say? We have God. Doctrine is the most practical thing you can hear. Okay, I'm off my podium. I'm back into the text. <laughs> you see, defending biblical truth was a battle in Timothy's day, just as it is for pastors and churches today. We are in a battle. Whether we realize it or not, it's a battle over ideas. A battle over what is truth. Or is there even such a thing as truth? And it is also challenging for pastors 
when their worth is incorrectly evaluated or measured by the size of their congregation, the beauty of their church buildings, which, by the way, you guys have done an awesome job. That's just a little side note. The books they published, the funny jokes they tell, and their popularity on the preaching circuit. However, when I read Timothy, Paul never mentioned any of these as a criteria for being a good pastor or being a good leader in a local church. So now let's examine the first two verses of our text. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7. And we want to see things that are essential for building a healthy, hopeful church. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained in the words of the faith, which is another way of saying the words of Scripture, and the good doctrine or teachings that have, you, you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So let's look at this, these two verses and see something here that is a good place to start. We keep hope alive by constantly nourishing ourselves on sound biblical doctrine. Paul exhorted Timothy to keep these things before the brothers, before the church. But what things is he referring to? By divine authority and prophetic word, Paul warned Christians to expect apostasy. Expect apostasy to escalate as we near the end of days before Christ's return. I don't know if you can relate to those words. Many who once identified with Christianity, like family members, friends, Christian spokesmen, and popular authors, they will depart. They will depart from the faith and just blend into the world. Believing in biblical truth as absolute, conforming morally to the biblical teachings of, and truth, and attending church will go out of style. People will be enamored, their ears tickled, if you would, with words that do not necessarily come from the scriptures. It's a sad thing. People will be, how would I say, caught up in this, but they're going to be oblivious, says Paul, to the fact that these doctrines, these strange teachings that swirl around us, they have their origin out of the pit of hell. Now, you can't see that. You don't, you know, see it rise up like that, but that's what Paul's saying. The things that are pounding in on us, they don't just come from the minds of men, but they even come from the influence of the demonic. He calls it the teachings of demons. Now, you, these are not my words or my evaluation. This is Paul's perspective in his day and for the church that's moving on. These apostates, as we would call them, they shouldn't be trusted, even if they have powerful, persuasive uh, personalities or enchanting religious rhetoric. In reality, Paul will say, are diabolical liars <laughs> whose conscience is seared. They can preach one thing in public while their private life is a moral disaster. 
they cleverly attempt to divide, to pollute curriculum and teaching, and confuse the definition of things that we have taken for granted, like gender. It happened in Paul's day, and it's happening again today. These religious phonies, they may profess to be wise, but Paul tells us in Romans, they've become fools. They are the intellectual elite. Um, they cleverly twist history and they distort truth to fit the values or the cry of the culture around it. What do you want to hear? Oh, let me talk about that. What do you need? Oh, let me talk about how I can meet that need. That's not just in the world. That actually happens in church from the pulpit. They deny the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. They deny the deity of Christ, the sanctity of life, as well as advocating such things as polytheism, pragmatism, relativism, and a real popular one today is called scientism. <laughs> that the truth lies with science, not the Bible. There is no other way to find acceptance with God than by faith. These people deliberately reject the notion or the clear teaching that salvation, acceptance with God is a free gift. We call it sovereign grace. It comes from God through faith alone, by grace alone, in who? In Christ alone. There is no other way that we find eternal life than through faith in Christ. And this is the kind of biblical doctrine that builds a hopeful, healthy church. And may the gospel always be preached here from this pulpit. Now, warning the church of present danger is essential. It was then, it is now. We must know sound biblical doctrine well enough to identify false teachers and teachings, but also to be knowledgeable enough to defend the truth, defend biblical truth. Doctrine is important. And a good servant seeks to please and honor his master by diligent, loyal obedience and excellent service. The Bible says it's required of good servants to be found faithful to their master. The ultimate lifetime goal that I have had, and do even more so the more mature I get, is to someday stand before my master and hear him utter these words. And I trust you long for this moment. Well done, thy good and what faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. That is worth all of the sacrifice, the frustrations, all that we go through here and we experience by being servants within the church. So it's critical, even this morning, to ask ourselves this question. Who or what is mastering your life? Who or what is mastering? Who is your master? And you say, what do you mean by that? I would say, your master 
is whoever you serve. Is it self-satisfaction? Destructive passions? Enslaving addictions? Worldly possessions? Or idols of the heart? Or is it our master who created us, loved us, died for us, saved us from slavery to sin, gave us new life, and promised to return in glory for us. Who do you serve? And our answer has implications. Our answer has implications in this life as well as in the life to come. Who is your master? So to overcome these challenges, Paul has encouraged Timothy to be well-nourished, to nourish himself with the words of Scripture and good doctrine. It's like an Olympic athlete who needs to sit regularly at the training table to have a healthy, balanced, nutritious diet. That's what you should receive when you come to hear the Word of God taught. We need to be regularly nourished by the words of faith and good doctrine. Now, Timothy grew up in a home where his grandma and his mom were godly women. And they taught him the scriptures as a little boy. And Paul picks up on that. And he exhorts Timothy to follow what you learned from your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Because if you follow what they taught you, it will be invaluable to you for the rest of your life. Where the Bible is faithfully taught, there will always be reason for hope. Do you believe that's true? I do. I'm committed to that. Secondly, we see that hope is kept alive by training ourselves to live a godly life. So after this warning about what to expect uh, 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 coming against the church, now comes a promise, a promise with hope. He says, rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The scene is trustworthy, it's reliable, it's deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil, why we toil, while we strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. That's why we toil, we strive in life, in our ministries, in our home, and in our work. Because our hope is a living hope, and we've set it on Christ. He is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Timothy was urged to keep in spiritual shape by continually training for godliness. I have tried to work on that and less on my physical part. Because I'm trying to be biblical. <clears throat> and you can quote me if you want. <laughs> the Greek word for training that's used here, interestingly enough, is like our English word gymnasium. So you need to go to the gymnasium, uh, spiritual gymnasium, uh, to work out. It should be a habit, a practice of daily practicing Spiritual disciplines like prayer, reading, memorizing, and meditating on God's Word. 
That's how you keep hope alive. Now, someone may be a great communicator from the pulpit, but without authentic godliness, purity, which you'll talk more about here, that man's message is hollow. You have to live what you preach. And building up our physical bodies is good. Paul doesn't deny that. But growing in godliness promises to be incomparably more valuable now and forevermore. If we paid as much attention to training ourselves to be godly as we do for exercising our physical bodies, we would experience more peace, joy, and love. He goes on, we keep hope alive by setting our hope on the living God. He says, for to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. God's servant toils and serves because it brings him joy. Strive, struggles, but only gives a joy. I think Jeff could attest to this. Ministry is not a career. It's not a good career. It's a lifelong calling. It's not a day job on Sunday, as some of my parishioners used to say. It must be nice you only work one day a week so you can keep your lawn nice and green. And you think I'm kidding, I'm not. So it's not a day job. It's an all-consuming way of life. It's not being a CEO of a non-profit organization. But it's self-sacrificing servant leadership for God's glory and the good of others. To survive ministry, one must set their hopes solely on God's promises and not on the acceptance and the applause of their audience. We are called to proclaim the gospel because it changes everything. I think I saw that somewhere out here. Changes everything. We proclaim the gospel to all peoples everywhere until Jesus returns. The Lord, he says, is the deliverer of all. He's the deliverer of all people in the sense that he will even deliver some who cry out for help in a crisis. Why? Because he's compassionate. But he is the deliverer. He is the savior of all sinners who confess their sin and they call upon him for forgiveness and to receive eternal life. He is our savior. Paul even talks about this in Romans 10. You can look that up later. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our part is to faithfully declare, preach, teach God's word as well as show practical acts of love. Declare the truth. And show love. God's part is to save the lost. We do our part, and He does the work of salvation. That's why we have to set our hope of seeing people we know come to faith by setting our hope on a sovereign living God. He goes, we keep hope alive by proving to be authentic examples of a godly life. So let no one despise you for your youth, but set the ex uh, believers an example. In what? In speech, 
conduct, love, faith, and purity. Wow, what a nice, that could just be a sermon to itself. It's not enough to just teach biblical truth, but it's essential to have a living example of the message that is being preached. Those who lead must lead by example, not by mandate, intimidation, or even age. I have two older retired missionaries in mind. They were in my church when I was a young, novice, idealistic pastor. So long ago, I can just barely remember those days. One man, one missionary, appointed himself, self-appointed himself, to be my critic. Uh, he would do this, even when I was praying. It'd be like, Jeff, when you're praying, somebody would be out there taking notes on your prayer. And then he would come afterwards and say, oh, this is what you said in your prayer, but look at the Puritan prayers I've read. Look at these. And I'm, you know, my response was try to be kind and respectful. But one, my prayer was not written. Two, I'm not a Puritan and I'm not that old. <laughs> but I also had another older gentleman, pastor, missionary. He was the most gracious, kind, encouraging man that a young pastor needs. He's a guy who was not a lightweight. He had written long articles in doctrinal theological dictionaries. Even wrote hymns. <laughs> so, you know, if he says something, I'm listening. But he was my treasured mentor and friend. Came alongside and said, Don, that was good. I never thought of that before, but you brought that up. That's good. I have to think about that. I go, you do? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like my missionary friend Paul gave Timothy a true measurement of the kind of example he should be. He needed to know that his words can either heal or hurt. His conduct can either bless or offend. His love can either affirm or be suppressed. And his purity can either be exemplary or dishonoring. That's what's at risk. So rather than despise youth and youthful ways, my exhortation to Jeff, who really doesn't need it because he has caught the vision, make every effort to befriend, encourage, and support, support the youth in your church. Look around at some of the young men and women who are here. And say, boy, that, that kid's got potential. That, that woman has got some real uh, capabilities here. That's what us mature people <laughs> need to do. Got to reach down and pull up. You got to look for and you got to affirm these are your future. Five. We keep hope alive by devoting ourselves to be lifetime students of God's word. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You don't need me to say too much about that. Did you notice what you did here this morning? Scripture reading in preparation for worship. Scripture reading of the text before I preached. That's what Paul said. Just do that, will you? Paul had every intention to come to Ephesus to encourage Paul, uh, Timothy. But he says, I want to give you three essentials for the priority of preaching. I'll give them to you quickly. The first is preach pre-selected scriptures 
before you preach. So that these verses, they support what is to be preached and how it should direct us towards worship. And to have somebody read it, as we did, together, responsive reading and so forth, is, is so important. So important to read God's word by yourself. In family, before the family, with the family. It helps keep hope alive in critical, chaotic days. Second priority is, kind of flows from the first. Exhort people to find grace. To find grace and hope in Christ. The responsibility of a good preacher is to exposit or reveal, unpack the text for the people. To give it clear understanding and practical relevance to everyone. This is kind of a little pet peeve for me, so I'm going to step aside from the pulpit for a minute. When it says to exhort the people, this is not the excuse or a good excuse for a pastor. To continually harass, chastise, or shame the people with moral lectures. The sermon should exhort the congregation to look to Christ and the cross. The third priority is systematically explaining the context and the content of a text. I might add that I had a family in my church, a uh, woman in particular, who when we would stand to read scripture, she would sit, not stand up with everybody, and she'd go. And I never understood why. You could tell she was displeased. So I asked her, I said, you know, I noticed that you sit when we all stand. And she goes, yes, pastor. We're becoming too formal. It's like liturgy. Really? She hadn't read 1 Timothy 4, I know. And I find it a little bit amusing, and I step away from the pulpit because it's kind of me, is that I was kind of amused by the fact that at her funeral, they read scripture, and she was laying down. <laughs> but <laughs> scripture should be a part of, it's just it's part of who we are. It's what we do when we're together. Whether you stand, but it's better to stand than to lay down. I'm going to tell you that one, just in case. And the third priority is systematic, explain the text and the content. It's not to be extemporaneous religious ramblings, to pump up deflated egos, or be an echo of a political pundit. Rather, the scriptures are to drive the message. Sermons should give people an adequate and appropriate understanding of God so they have a greater appreciation of who he is, what he has done, and he's promised to do for us. This helps God's people love and trust him and gives them hope. Hopefully, this is where you're coming from. The congregation should be unified on essential doctrinal truth, yet charitable to those who hold different non-essential doctrines, but in everything we should glorify Christ. That keeps hope alive in the church. Dogmatism doesn't. We keep hope alive by realizing God has given us spiritual gifts. What are the gifts for? To fulfill our callings. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given by prophecy. When the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I've had the benefit of knowing Jeff as a young man. And I watched his progress. 
So when someone called me from the church and says, what would you like to say about uh, Jeff? I said, I'd like to say a lot of things, but what do you want to hear? <laughs> well, what do you think about him coming to our church? I don't remember the exact words. I think I met the gentleman I did that this morning said, I just want to talk to you. I just said, if you uh, don't select him, you've made a big mistake. I still believe that's true. You see, each of us, not just pastors, pastors' wives, staff, but all born-again believers received a gift or gifts to serve Christ. The Lord intends for our joy in life to be found by maximizing the use of our spiritual gifts. Use them, don't abuse them. Use them and you will find more joy. Sitting on the sidelines won't do it. Paul reminds Timothy, do you remember when I laid my hands on you? Do you remember when the council of elders came along and they put their hands on you? Why? Because they were affirming your call and the gift that you received. And he tells Timothy, and I'm reminding Jeff, when you're discouraged, feeling completely inadequate, as I did often, remember, you were called and gifted, and the church said, we agree. Don't forget that. I was there, I participated in, Pastor Tim Thule, who will, I think, be coming up sometime, he and another man and uh, his church, as well as two people from your church, they came, we recognized, we affirmed, we blessed that your pastor is called and gifted to do the work of ministry. So for all of you, see, well, how does that translate for me? Remember the day you became a believer. Remember the time you yielded your life to Christ. And at that moment, that very moment, not because you were excited, not because you were good or made good choices, but because God saved you by his sovereign grace and gave you a gift or gifts to live out the rest of your life. For what purpose? For the purpose of your life. All of us have been given a purpose when you're living contrary to that purpose, you are swimming upstream. Go with the flow. Use the gifts that God gave you, and you will find more joy than you maybe can expect any other way. The good servant practices what he preaches, and he gives attention to the hope that's in him. He's to be totally absorbed in his calling. You can't be a pastor like when you want to feel, when you feel like it. You gotta be a pastor. You gotta serve as you folks know. Even when you don't feel like it. You feel inadequate. You say, that's the last thing I want to do today. And the Lord said, No, that's the first thing you should do. Because when you do it by faith and obedience, that's when I'm pleased. I'd encourage you to consider that and to keep growing even when you're mature, old, ancient of days. Don't stop growing in the word and in your faith. Finish well. Break the tape. That's how I look at my life. I feel like I bringing track and that kind of thing. And they, I remember I used to just be out of breath and I could, you know, like halfway across the, you know, the track, I could look across and I could see the finish line over there. And the closer I got, I thought, you know, I think I can kick it in a little more because I cannot wait to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get a drink of water. I can't wait to receive the reward. And that would be my incentive to finish and finish well. 
Well, let me tell you, I can see the tape. I don't know how far it is. But I can tell you this, it's worth it to kick it in. And you can kick it in in the local church by encouraging youth, new people, young families. Go get them. Love them. Nurture them. Affirm them for who they are and the potentials and the gifts that they have. And keep hope alive by keeping a close watch on ourselves and what we teach. Keep a close watch on yourselves and the teaching persists. Keep it up. Persist in this. What? In watching yourself and teaching. Persist in this, so for by so doing, you will save both yourself, not in the sense of salvation, but save yourself and your hearers, and I would add, from the troubles that come when you disobey. Many times, pastors and pastors' wives are their hardest critics. Am I really adequate for this? Can I really do Do I really want to do this? Sometimes they hear words that people say, and uh, what the, you know, I, I just can't believe it comes from the lips of, a, of another believer. How critical people can be of each other. I'm not going to that church. I'm going to a church now where I'm a member of that church and I preach there at times. But we had people who would say, you know, I'm not going back, coming back to the church because some of those people don't wear masks. Another would say, I'm going there because they wear masks and those other people can go somewhere else. <laughs> they can go to the Catholic church right down there. I'm going, like, wait a minute, how does that fit in to having a healthy church? What does that say about our faith and our love for each other? Now, you don't have those problems here, but you do in Southern California. And you happen to get a pastor from Southern California. Sorry. <laughs> but if he stays in the Word, that's all you need. And he has a godly example. He's got to have that. I love it that Paul spoke so directly encouraging Timothy. He told Timothy about, his, about what to expect from your life. What do you want your minister to be like? Did that in 1 Timothy 1.5. Love will come forth, will flow from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, authentic faith. Where are you going to find the love to love these people? Well, for your love for Christ and his love for you and you love his people. I don't know how he loves me. What do I give him? I know what I give God daily, my sin. <laughs> and I keep asking, Lord, what do you get out of this, Lord? Because what am I actually giving to you? And I've learned he isn't asking me to give him anything except my sin. Just give me your life, okay? I've covered you with grace. Now, let me be your master. Let me master you. And you become a good servant. The brokenhearted are crying. They're crying out of desperation around the world. And I do go... A lot of places around the world, they are crying out. And yet I also say this, like places I go in China, Ethiopia, Haiti, the jungle Peru, Philippines. You know what I can say about them? They're in desperation, but when I'm with them, they rejoice. They're some of the most joyful people in all the world while they are, have empty stomachs. And the government is oppressing them. You go, how do you do that? They go, well, you know, Jesus is our hero. You go, what do you mean you're a hero? Well, he's our savior. 
but he was like us. He was just like us. They're the poor. The poor are saying, he's our hero. He's the one identified with us. We love him for that. He understands what it's like to be poor, to, to be hungry, to be displaced, to have no place to lay your head. We totally understand. And if he would do that for us, that's the Christ I want to follow. So those of can be, I pray that Christ is your hero, your savior, your friend. We will continue to hear the cry of the world, but the question is, will we offer hope? Will we answer and give hope And that hope is in the living God. Let me close with this. This is Paul's prayer. It's my prayer. May the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Keeping hope alive by setting your hope on the living God. May the Lord continue to bless this church and this couple are sitting in the front row. I love them. And uh, my heart is with them and now with you. Lord bless you. Thank you.